2: So if I can be kind to you, you can be kind to me, baby. That's love. That's, that's the religion I want to serve.
1: Hi, welcome to Town Hall, a Black queer podcast. The podcast where we journey through a theme by sharing stories, music, poetry, and art of varying depth and hilarity.
3: Now, today's episode is about our religion and spirituality people say it as if they're the antithesis to each other. Like I'll ask someone like, are you religious? And I'll go, no, I'm spiritual. I feel like religion is typically based around like a organized religion that is pretty massive. Like there's a, there's a couple of big religions, like the really, especially the really big ones, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism. um, And then there's, and then those all break down into like a lot of different subsects. And then you have like, maybe like, you know, Confucianism, which is technically a religion, but also a philosophy, and then you have spirituality, which people tend to uh, akin more to nature. In my mind, it's like nature and spirits and ancestors. And you know, when I think about a spiritual person, I think of like this is probably like incense or you know beads or or you know
1: locks. Well, I think religion is basically a collection of practices that are meant to keep people in line. I think religion is literally the practice of using spirituality as a means to unify a bunch of people, whereas spirituality, I think, is a probably more of a, a personal relationship that has nothing to do with how your schedule, how often you do these things, or necessarily how you live your life in, in alignment with other people,
3: I used I used to be really obsessed with religion as a as a as a, as a kid in school in social studies when we get to the religion portion of of the the text I remember being like this is so exciting to learn about other like I just remember being so intrigued I remember the first time I realized that like certain people couldn't eat like bacon and I was like what you can't have bacon like why can't you have bacon then I found out that like Catholics i think don't eat red meat and i was like y'all don't eat red meat and then they have to like give up stuff for like 40 days and i was like, y'all have to give up stuff for like 40 days out of the year you just you just they all pick their own thing they're like i'm i'm done with this i'm done with coffee i'm mm-hmm. done with chicken nuggets but all
1: those things are connected to to like reasons what was going on in society at the time and the time when those rules came around you know what yeah. i mean um but going back to the I think the non the first time I would ever heard about non denominational church it really made. I I think it must have been a lesbian that I heard talking about or someone that I thought was a lesbian <laughs> saying that they go to a non denominational church I love either church. a lesbian and or so, someone
3: that I was sure
1: <laughs> Well I mean I I mean I was a kid and so like they didn't I don't think they came up to me and were like I'm gay but like someone who who clearly was like operating outside of the traditional yeah. gender norms that, uh, that I had been taught. And so I think I thought non-denominational for a while. I didn't think, but I, I, I knew that at a non-denominational church, you were going to find a very like diverse group of people, which included no doubt mm-hmm. some gay folks.
3: This sounds like a serve how you met and Wanda that Sykes. Was,
1: that was always exciting
3: <laughs> to me. This sounds like it sounds the, like it sounds like I that what I said. this is like the story of how you. It not like I met Wanda. I said, that was Wanda. I said, this is the story of how you met Wanda Side. You're like it was some lesbian came up to me and told me <laughs> about nothing. <non-denominational
1: laughs> some lesbian came up and told me about, about a non denominational church, and that is how I became friends with Wanda Side.
4: I'm Gaz. I'm from Melbourne, but I am currently in Sydney for work. I've been a teacher for the last seven years but I've always wanted to give performing a go. So I'm in my professional debut here in Sydney in Choir Boy, uh, which is very exciting. I have always been queer. That's uh, That has always been true. But as it's true for a lot of us, I felt the need to hide who I was in order to feel belonging, in order to hold on to opportunity to use my gifts, like singing, like performing. And that was particularly in the church environment. When I decided, hold on a minute, I think it's okay to be exactly who I I am, I lost church. I was actually the worship pastor. I was on staff at that church and they knew I was queer when I took the job because there were some complaints that I had gotten the job. I wasn't out at that point, so it was all purely speculation. But I came out to them when I got the job and they're like, yeah, we're going to do this journey with you. We think you're perfect for the job and all of that jazz. And after that, my sibling decided that they wanted to publicly come out. I said, Slay, just know that the clock is ticking, that we are going to (laughs) lose. We're going to lose community. We're going to lose church. We're going to lose this foundation, this rock that we had built our lives on. When Jesse, my sibling, came out, the church stood them down as a volunteer singer. So Jesse was no longer able to sing. I was incredibly heartbroken, incredibly angry, and I resigned instantly. At that point, because I'm a bit of a people pleaser, I thought that if I stayed a part of the community, not a staff member, but just being there as a representation for Uh, gender diverse and sexually diverse people, that change might happen. So I said to the leadership of the church, hey, I'm resigning, but I still want to be a part of this community. The laws were changing in Melbourne at that time, that they could no longer pray the gay away. And I made it clear that you're going to need to have someone to help you understand what it's like to be queer in a religious space, queer in this specific space. And I would love the privilege to, you know, guide and give share my experience. It was pretty much static silence. They didn't want to have any further conversation. And that was heartbreaking. It was painful. It was like being a stranger in your own house. This church I had called home for 14 years and all of a sudden, It was just like everything that I had done to contribute to that community, contribute to that congregation, it just felt like it wasn't appreciated or perhaps even worth it. So I went into a pretty dark place with my mental health, grieving. It was a lot of grief. Everything that I had invested, just not seeming to have a return (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was just like a lot of grief of everything that like I had held on and this is who I am I am a worship pastor I sing I do this didn't have that at all anymore a lonely lonely time where you're looking at people who you thought were family you used that word you said family um, and where are you now my faith is still a really big part of who I am I don't feel the need to go to a church service I do feel the need to connect with the divine, with something that is bigger than me, whether that looks like the divine in other people. And it's a cliche term, but I've deconstructed everything that the religious institution has taught me. And I've built my new faith on three things. It's to love God up there, but also in here and in others. And love people for exactly who they are. When I was able to love myself without shame I was able to love my neighbour for exactly who they were and not hold any bible verses or whatever tradition over them. I am just chasing what the bible calls the fruit of the spirit which I do not believe that Christianity has a monopoly on. I believe humanity in all of its expressions can experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what I'm chasing in life. If I have that, I feel like I'm close with God and I feel like I'm close with others and myself.
3: Today we're going to talk about a lot of different things based on religion. I met Sage a while back. Sage lives in Florida. Sage is uh, non-binary, uses um, they and he pronouns. Sage is Black and trans non-binary. and grew up Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox, which um, is really um, seems rare to me. I'm sure Sage probably knows more people in those scenarios than I do. <laughs> um, so this is Sage.
5: Hi, my name is Sage Rosenberg. I am a trans mask, a Jew of color, which for a lot of people sounds like a lot of terms that maybe do those all go together. And I'm like, yes, they in fact do. Um, I was raised in Miami Beach in pretty much an all white community where we were there was one other family that had a brown child, but it was pretty much just us. And that's something where I face a lot of otherness, but it kind of got channeled into what I do now, which is I educate people on best practices for diversity and inclusion and equity and creating a culture of belonging. So maybe a tougher journey to start, but it's gotten me to somewhere kind of like, I don't know, I found my passion, which is lit. <laughs> I always kind of Uh, carried with me this feeling of otherness. You know I mean? I went into a room and most people didn't look the way I did. You know, I was raised in a very orthodox, a modern orthodox like community. Uh, Just for context, I didn't try McDonald's till like the age of 18. Um, And I was in an, I don't know, literally, people are always so gagged by that, but it's something where like my life experiences was so much like the community I was a part of and nothing outside of that. And then within that community, there wasn't really anyone besides my siblings that looked like me. And I just felt so like, I don't fit in here. And I tried so many ways. And like then there's also that trans aspect where you know I'm looking around, and especially in a religious community, there's this huge, specifically Jewish community, there's this huge division for what is expected of AFAB people versus uh, assigned female at birth people versus what is expected of people who are assigned male at birth. And I mean it's one of those things where it made it very clear to me that I was indeed a trans person because especially a non-binary person, because there was these very strict uh, gender roles that were assigned to my community. But in terms of like me kind of finding the community that I have now, it's something where I kind of just assumed that I was too different to be a part of a larger community, especially since I didn't really have a great understanding of the outside world outside of my own. And I know that's a, it, you know, I say it and I come to this conclusion. And when you first come to this conclusion, you feel like it's this revelation that no one's ever had. Oh, I'm, I'm a little different, you know, when all of a sudden, you know, we as queer people, we as people of color. When we're all together, we're just talking about the fact that, like, this otherness that we all felt, this all feeling of "I don't deserve to be loved. I will have to work harder to, in order to be loved." There's something about me that is inherently unlovable, ends up creating these spaces where we're just—it—it's so beautiful. Like stepping into a room that is created by queer people of color, there's an electricity in the air that I. I don't know where else I would find that. There is a sense of self, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of traditions, heritage, just this mixture of all that we are and then all that we are going to be all in one space. And I think so much of the pain that I went through of childhood where I felt othered ended up creating this really kind of, uh, you know, I'll compliment myself for a little. It's this beautiful light that I have to create my own community where people can thrive just authentically as the people that they are. In my household, um, I have my wonderful, loving parents. Um, and then I have my two older brothers. Uh, and I feel so blessed that I get to describe my parents who are very religious in that lens. That's definitely a huge privilege that I hold. Um, so my mom is someone who um, she is a wonderful, wonderful beam of light, black woman, superpower superhero. Um, and she was someone who, um, you know, she was raised in New Jersey um, and it was something where uh, during the 50s you know, the Black and Jewish community were very commonly in the same community. Um, You know I mean? We were just kind of ostracized from the world. We found our own places and we ended up being in a lot of the same communities together. So growing up, my mom was very much exposed to uh, Judaism and Shabbat, which is something that Jews do every single weekend where, you know, we just celebrate the day of rest. And it's something where she, again, to talk about that topic of belonging again, she felt this belonging for Judaism as a culture. So later in life, um, because whenever I say that, you know, oh, you know, my mom's black, my dad's white, and my mom's a convert, my dad was born Jewish and was really, really religious, people always jump to the conclusion that my mom must have converted for my dad, that my dad somehow maybe not necessarily pressured. I mean, some people have jumped to that conclusion, or somehow influenced her into converting. But it was something where she actually converted prior to meeting him, but then just met him and created a family together. I kind of have something where my family did, uh, my parents did get divorced when I was around like 12, but they always said, and they continuously say that like, they weren't meant to be together forever, but that's exactly who they wanted to raise their kids with. And it's something where I feel very lucky, where I don't count myself as being a deeply spiritual or a religious person, but culturally I am so, so Jewish. Like, I don't know if I introduced my last name with this, but my last name is Rosenberg. So I'm, yeah. So Sage Rosenberg, it's, I am not the person people expect when I walk in. If I'm making a reservations, they were not expecting me. They're expecting a little 50 year old white man. Um, it was not, I was not. Exactly, who they're profiling. But, anyways, with that, it's something where I very strongly associate with my Jewish culture because of still to this day, after leaving the little bubble that I was a part of, after leaving the very religious community that are at least leaving, practicing it on a daily basis, it's something where the way that my parents framed Judaism wasn't ever this is exactly who you are it was always more like, this is something that we hope you incorporate in your life. I bring Judaism into my life in like multiple different ways that, again, aren't really based on me feeling this need to uh, please a higher power. It's something where, again, I love being in community spaces. I love being around people who were, you know, that was my entire life to the age of 18. Like, again, I my entire worldview was Judaism. So yes, there was a part of me that was like, okay, this is not in me as an adult in crafting my life, this is not exactly the environment that I want to be a part of, but it's something where, again, I still want aspects there. Like I want during the holidays when it's Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, which is our big high holidays, you know, it's not so much I'm going to services because I'm feeling the need to connect with God. It's more that I'm feeling the need to connect with my community. And that's where I leave it. And uh, my partner, um, we are actually, we got legally married. Uh, Next month will be three years. Three years ago, but we got legally married, but we never counted that. We never counted that marriage ever, but we count the fact when I tell people, I'm like, oh, we got married a few months ago because we finally had the religious service that's how typical Jewish weddings did. Obviously, we did a very non binary queer spin on everything, but it's just, I've found ways that again, like I'm upholding my heritage without letting it dictate what my daily practices are, what makes me either a good or bad person, what makes my life worth living like that kind of stuff is not so much where I focus my connection with my religion it's purely the aspect of this is some place where I feel a connectivity to the people around me so my partner is someone who was not raised as religious as I was or more not as orthodox as I we actually didn't know that we were both Jewish when we first started dating it was something where um you know we met on Grinder and it was something where you know I reached out he was very cute whatever we do the do uh we go in for like a second date or whatever and then after this date uh, I decide that you know we're going to go to Denny's um the fact that we're going to Denny's after this date should tell you what kind of date it was we were a little hungry anyways so I'm eating a piece of bacon because I love bacon now bacon's amazing bacon's incredible first time I tried it um Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) my love story to bacon Um, is something. So I had a piece of bacon and I go ahead and I extend it to him and I'm like, hey, do you want a bite? And he's like, oh, no, I'm okay. I actually don't eat pork. And all of a sudden I'm like, why? He's like, oh, fun fact, I'm actually Jewish. And I'm like, I'm Jewish. And all of a sudden I felt like the glow of like my forefathers and foremothers and Jewish grandmothers smiling ear to ear. And I'm like, oh my god and he's like wait you're jewish and i'm like yeah and then this is the point where i pull out my id and show him the rosenberg and i'm like see that's my last name <laughs> and then from there i think it, the most beautiful part about our relationship i think is that like that was something that i always wanted growing up like i always wanted to build a jewish family because again there is such a beautiful quality of building like a uh, a family or a life with someone who shares culture with you especially if it doesn't it's not the culture of the mainstream or anything like that and i you know i kind of always pictured i was like oh i'm going to have this like nice jewish husband and this nice jewish family and then as i came into my queer identity i'm like okay so that's probably not how this is going to go and then just for him to end up coming into my life and it was someone who i didn't pursue him because he was jewish i pursued him because i thought he was adorable and very cute and then he just so happened to be jewish and it just been so beautiful kind of just watching the ways that our relationship grows the way that like his excitement for learning more about judaism because i have such a plethora of knowledge because of my upbringing has brought me like almost an excitement over talking about stuff that i was like oh i'm probably never gonna need this information in my life ever again i think a lot of what i was taught about masculinity from judaism and i think just religion in general is that there is a way to be a gender like there's one specific way there's one specific mold, and it needs to fit this way, and it, you need to hit this box, like you need to be the perfect provider, you need to be strong, you need to make sure you're influential, You uh, people need to be able to listen to you, uh, the people in your family should listen to you, what you say goes, your needs are prioritized over other people because you're doing so much for the household. And then again, like as I'm growing up and as this, I almost describe when I turned 18 as like literally someone popped my bubble and all of a sudden I was seeing the world outside of this kind of realm that I would been living in. And I think social media for me personally was so influential for me being able to see other people because I remember when I first started like looking at trans people online. Like I was in class, like I, I remember this so distinctively, I was in class and I found it. And I just all of a sudden had this hyper fixation where I couldn't look away. And we're, it, it literally was a religious class. we like learning something from the Torah. And all of a sudden I'm just like looking at like top surgery results. And the first thing that popped into my brain was that like, oh, I must be attracted To these people, like I must be attracted to trans people. That's why I'm so obsessed. And then, obviously, the pipeline of me end up being a trans person unfolds. But I think that's where I started realizing that there was so much ways that I could live life. That there wasn't a very strict way for me to be, unless I wanted it to be that way. There wasn't anything that because I was born with one set of genitalia that I had to do because either a book told me, or a person told me, or a community told me, or a higher power told me that. In fact, like the only real higher power is like my own personal navigation system for what it is that makes life worth living for me. What makes me feel like myself? What makes me wake up in the morning and say, wow, I really did create a life that is my own. There's so much pain and discomfort that a lot of people feel, especially queer people and especially people of color in their upbringings. And it reminds me of this like one short film that I saw once in high school where like I didn't actually like the film. I don't even remember if it was a short film. It might have been like a full length. Like I really cannot recollect anything from this movie. But what always stuck with me was the title. And it was just called, One Day This Pain Will Be Useful For You. And that has stuck with me since because I feel like that's so much of like how... I've been able to kind of cultivate the following that I have, or just like the experiences that I have, the person that I pride myself to be is all so much stemmed from the pain that I went through. And again, it's not something where I would go back in time and relive those years. Like, no one could pay me enough money to relive high school, like, no one could pay it. But it's something where I feel so immensely grateful and thankful for the fact of the insights I got. From feeling so outside the norm, for feeling so different than everyone else, from just kind of breaking the mold, even though it is it is so uncomfortable being different than everyone. And that's something that as queer people, we're all in the same rooms. And it's like, yep, yeah, we went through that. We know how this goes. But we are also, like, if you're looking at it, like, just kind of trendsetters, like uh, the way that we're seeing how people are picking up on our lingo and uh, our fashion and they are yassing and slaying the day. And I just think it really does come down to the fact that, like, this, even though we went through all of that, us still just sticking and being ourselves, and it's just it's this light. It's something that like I I really do feel so thankful for because it sucks that it comes from hardships. But at the end of the day, there's so much pride in just being different and having gone through anything difficult, but then having survived. I think that's like the biggest thing, just having survived within itself. It just like there's no greater accomplishment. Like I'm untouchable. <laughs> Like, I don't remember one moment me being like, oh my God, there's not a God, or oh my God, I don't feel a connection to anything in particular having to do with religion or spirituality. It just felt like this. my personality kind of had maybe like a snowball effect of what it was that I believed. And it was never so different than all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I'm a different person now than I was a different day. It felt like something that was just building up over time, if anything. There's so many times that, like, you know, I do uh, diversity, equity, inclusion trainings professionally, and I feel like so much of the cultural lens of things that I've learned from Judaism that I've viewed as being positive, like there's this aspect of doing teshuva, which is this act of kind of... um it's basically taking accountability for doing something wrong. You know what I mean? Specifically when you're talking about with someone else where it's like, okay, um, I did something wrong to this person. I have the obligation to do chichuva. I have to go ahead and get acceptance. I have to make sure that this person actually feels seen, that I that they know that I've hurt them. And in diversity trainings, that's a, such an important model to have, which is after you have done a micro or macro aggression how are you then going to respond so that this person actually feels healed not so much i'm just saying sorry because uh and you know i've learned about this subject and just saying sorry wouldn't be tesh- like teshuva in god's book it would be something where again you have to make sure that you're actually Writing a wrong as best as you can and extending an apology that's actually not just the words, but the sentiment, the intangible feeling that someone knows that one, oh, I'm sorry, I've offended you. But two, I'm going to try to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And again, so there's aspects of religious teachings. I could open this book at random and I could find something that I, I do not stand by. I like I if like I did not sponsor this message. This is not on brand for KingFem Enterprises. Absolutely not. But that's something where again, that's why again, I just don't hold myself for that exact reason as being a like religiously I'm Jewish, like it's like culturally I'm Jewish because again, I, and I think there's multiple ways that we can look at religion. I don't think it's always has to be something where like this ancient book years ago, you have to agree with every single thing. I think I've talked to a lot of different people where it's something where like, okay, I'm not going to agree with this as a sentiment, but if I'm getting positive, anything from this, if it is healing, any type of relationships I have, it's improving my life in any way. I think that it's just something where People have like a very like all or nothing approach to life in general, or just the need to box yourself into labels and a way of doing things. And especially me as being like a non-binary queer person, like so much of the lens I have is that like, I don't need to be one thing. I don't need to do something in accordance to the only way I need to do it in accordance to is however I want to do it. However, it makes me feel like I'm representing myself as best as I possibly can. What would I tell a younger sage? All right, Well, you're a baddie now. So, period. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I I think in uh, all seriousness, you are very happy at this exact moment in time. Like, just I maybe I'll give him like a a piece of paper. I'm holding up a newspaper that shows the date, and I'll be like. You're very happy right now. And I think that's, I might just leave it at that, honestly, because I don't think anything besides that, like, oh, don't worry, it gets better. Don't worry, you find your people. When you're depressed, when you're in a bad place, none of that stuff means anything. It's just things that people say to you to make you feel better, but just strong proof that it really did get better. I really am leading a life that I find very fulfilling. I have a lovely group of people around me. I've did all this lovely, lovely stuff, and I just am genuinely happy. And I think, That's
1: what I would give them. Our next guest has their doctorate in educational justice. And they are a professor who examines the intersection of identity and gender, race, and entertainment, which sounds absolutely perfect. And so far, um, these stories are as varied and as eclectic as religion can be itself. And so... Um, I'm really excited to introduce to you uh, Dr. John Paul, who uses they, them.
2: My name is John, also known as Dr. John Paul, and I am a writer and an educator and (laughs) well-known, I would say, social media critic or some type of critic of that nature. Religion is always very interesting to me because there are so many things now that I know about religion That I didn't know when I was younger. And I think it helped frame or shape those moments when you kind of have like trauma moments or moments where you're like, oh my God, I'm in so much duress and you don't know why. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so um, as I shared with you all kind of prior to this conversation, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. Everyone on my mother's side were Jehovah's Witnesses and everyone on my father's side were Jehovah's Witnesses. So it was like, I never really got a relief from the notion of religion. Religion always found its way into any of our conversations. Religion found its way into the way I, going to school when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can't, you know, no Pledge of Allegiance, no birthday parties, no holiday parties. So everything that I did was influenced by religion. And so when you start talking about your formative years, right, right and wrong, um, guilt. And this is something that I've processed even too with my, my therapist, this notion of perfection, like growing up as a Jehovah's witness, they push you to be as perfect as perfect can be. And you're kind of going, well, I'm human and I'm going to make mistakes, but it's like, that's not acceptable when you're a JW. Like, you have to show up the way everyone wants you to show up. So there's a basically growing up when you talk about formative years and you talk about my youth, there was a lot of pressure. I had some things kind of happen when I was about 14 ish. Um, and I was there was this pressure of like I started to notice and started to understand that I was, in fact, queer, very young. Like I knew I was I knew I was different maybe like from the time I was five however um you know you never really talk about it and so when I got to be about 12 13 I can always remember and it's funny because I actually got to share this with um I hope I can say this here but Danny from the real world so I had a moment this past year in 2022 where we were in the same room and I shared that Danny from the real world was the first like queer person that I had, queer storyline. queer person. I don't know if you all watched, but he was on the New Orleans. It was like 2000 is and I was about 14 or 15. Um, And so seeing Danny's storyline on that show and my own storyline, right. Of like trying to understand why I was attracted to this person that I didn't even know. And under not comprehending what that attraction was. I told one of the brothers in my hall, because they said, well, you're not showing up. And it's like it's so interesting to have to break this down too because some people might be reading or listening to this and they may go, "What is a brother?" So there's brothers and then there's elders. and you basically go to these elders who, quote unquote, they're like, they see everyone in the kingdom hall as the flock, right? And so when you do something wrong or when you're dealing with something that you maybe feel guilt for, you're supposed to go to one of these elders. And so it just so happened that one of these elders was the person that was studying with me because the goal was we want to get you baptized so we can send you to Bethel. Many of you may not know what Bethel is, but Bethel is this large organization that operates out of New York and basically only... Quote unquote straight cis men are supposed to go there. But the, the 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 word is that they send off a lot of men to Bethel in Jehovah Witnesses organizations because they were it's a way for them to basically suppress their homosexuality. I was basically being shaped <laughs> and 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 given responsibilities in my Kingdom Hall so they could send me off to Bethel so no one would have to worry about me being queer or me making people look bad in the Kingdom Hall. Now, the way that I understand it at the age of of what I am now, at 17, I didn't comprehend it. But now at 37, I'm like, oh, they basically want to keep me. They're sending me here so that they can keep me so busy that I don't have time to meet other queer people, that I don't have time to meet another queer person, that I don't have time to fall in love with someone of the same sex. Got it, right? So that's basically what it is, is that they want to keep you so busy with biblical stuff, religious stuff, that you don't have time to actually have a social life, if that makes sense. Another thing about this religion, they do not want you to go to college. College is a big no-no. Trade schools are okay. Training programs are good. But college, not so much. Um, I had my heart set on going to college since I was like maybe 13. Um, I knew what college I wanted to go to. I knew who I wanted to go to college with. It was me and my best friend. We were going to go to Hawaii. We were going to do all of these things. And I told the brothers that. They were like, "Eh, not so much. We don't think that's a good idea. Well... I did it anyway. I applied. I got accepted to all five of the schools that I wanted to go to. I went and told one of my peers in the relig- in the church that I got in because they we were kind of going through this thing of like, we're going to apply together and we're not going to tell anybody. We're just going to go off into the sunset to get away from these people. And that's exactly what happened. We both went to Cal State San Bernardino together um, and their parents found out that they had applied because they were actually 18 and I was 17. So their parents found out that they applied and called my parents and said, do you know that, you know, Jonathan is thinking about going to college? And my mom was like, I don't really care. She was like, you know, my mom was one of those parents and my mom kind of still is. She's very much kind of like <laughs> she's in the religion, but she kind of does whatever she wants to do. <laughs> and I love that about my mom. But all that to be said, um, and I'm sorry I'm giving you all of this background, but it just OK, I'm I'm hoping it helps frame folks understanding why I think the way I think. So all that to be said, my friend's family contacted my mom. My mom basically said that they didn't care. Well, the brothers and the elders in the hall, they found out. And one of the brothers came to me and said, I don't think this is a good idea. You are basically, they hit me with 1 Corinthians 15, bad association, spoils, useful habits. Everybody who went to college was bad association. There's people who are of the religion and people who are not. And anyone who is not a Jehovah's Witness is considered bad association. And so because I was going to college, I was putting myself in a situation to be around other people who were quote unquote ungodly. Um, And so I was setting myself up to quote unquote, I think they're now, again, now being able to process it, they were worried that all of the work of indoctrinating me was gonna be undone by me going to college. And that's actually what happened. (laughs) So I get into a critical thinking course. In the class, I remember him saying, My job is not to teach you what to think, it's to teach you how to think. And I was like, Okay, bet. All that to be said, turn in that paper, one of the papers, and the guy comes back, the teacher comes back to me, or professor comes back to me and he says, all of this stuff is stuff that you've been taught from your religion. I want to know what you believe. And it hit me that I didn't know anything outside of the religion. And it almost, it was like a really scary, it was almost like if someone would have picked you up and just dropped you off in like the UK, it's like, I ain't never grown up here. I don't know nothing about no trolleys. Like it literally felt like I had got dropped into a whole different world because that bubble had popped. Like, girl, you don't know anything outside of that. So, all that to be said, I'm having, you know, I'm I'm still meeting friends, I'm still meeting people. And I think I went to the movies and I'll never forget it. I went to the movies with a friend of mine. I had started working at the Starbucks on campus. I went to the movies after work with. One of my coworkers and his girlfriend at the time, and we all went to the movies. It was a whole bunch of the folks who worked at the Starbucks on campus. We all went. And then like maybe that Thursday or that Sunday, I'm not sure which day it was, I got called to the back in the hall of the hall. And I go back there and I'm like, what's going on? And they're basically, they tell me, we saw you at, somebody saw you. They didn't tell me who. They said, someone saw you at the movies with people who are not witnesses what's that about and that for me was the real kind of like i'm being watched <laughs> like this is scary right so now it's now it's becoming it's not just the indoctrination it's the idea that i'm being watched that really set me off and i was like wait a second this is way more than what i ever signed up for um and so i still going to college still getting to know people and i meet another girl who also was a reformed Jehovah's Witness. And she basically was like, Look, girl, um, you know, I hate to break it to you, but you're an occult. That 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 day lives so fragrantly in the front of my mind. Um, I basically had to go in. Um, there were six brothers around the table, and they basically said, We know that you're queer. We know that you're hanging out with the wrong people. Um, either you, either either you um Sign this paper and we put you on reproof. So I have to break this down too, because there's something called reproof. And then there's something called disfellowshipped. So even though I had interest in like hanging out with like people who weren't witnesses and I did have like a little love interest at the time, there was nothing that they could prove that I had done that could have put, that could have disfellowshipped me. Now, baby, I was out here have I was living my life. Now I was freshman in college. Gas was cheap. <laughs> I was living. WeHo was only a good 45 minutes away. Girl, I was getting my life, right? Um, But all that to be said, no one could prove that I was doing anything wrong. So reproof is, we'll take away all of, you can't talk to anybody. You can't hang out with anybody in the religion, but you're not disfellowshipped. You can say hi, bye, and that's basically it. They could not disfellowship me. And when I when, when they put that paper in front of me to say, you're you're attesting to be put on reproof. I started asking questions. I said, well, I just want to know who is following me. That was the, that was the only question. I that I want to know why I'm being watched. Why am I being so why am I being surveil- surveilled surveilled? Um, and they couldn't really give me an answer, and they basically were saying we're just we're 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 concerned, you know that you're you're a, a part of you're basically in the the wrong crowd. I said, well, what's the wrong crowd? Like, what are you trying to insinuate? I've not done anything wrong. Meanwhile, I was out there living my best life. But all that to be said, I was still concerned. Um, and so I told them, I said, I'm not signing this. And they basically said, well, if you don't sign this, we'll have to disfellowship you. And I said, I'm not signing it. And it was kind of in that moment that it hit me. It was like, girl. You are 18, <laughs> you got you a car, you got financial aid, you have a whole full-time job, you don't need these people. And so I grabbed my keys and I got up and left. And I said, "Um, y'all can do whatever y'all want to do. I said, but this, I said, and I didn't say it in that way. You know, Jonathan, 37 year old, Jonathan would have said, girl, if you don't get out of my face, but you know, the 18 year old me, 18, 19 year old me was kind of just like, you know what? I think I'm gonna go ahead and leave. And I left and I never went back. That was kind of like, that was the last meeting that I ever had. Um, And it's weird because I'll say this and then we can go on other questions. I still get letters from them saying, we know that you're, you know, we would love to start a study with you. We would love for you to come back. And it's weird because I, the only person that I still talk to that's a witness is my mom. But I know for a fact that my mom would never do that. so. It's So that also is what spooks me because it's like, how the hell do y'all know where I live? My mom and my aunt were probably the two that were like, girl, y'all do whatever you want to do. That's your life. Like, that's how my mom and my aunt move. But the rest of my family, they don't move that way. And so it was just, it felt, it was very hard, especially around the holidays too, because again, my family doesn't celebrate holidays When you're in college and you have friends being like, oh, I'm not staying on campus because I'm going home to visit my family for Christmas. And you're kind of like on campus by yourself because it's like, well, I can't go home and I'm by myself here. You know, you just kind of feel very isolated. So I think in the first like, like, yeah, the first few years that I left the religion, I felt very isolated. Being a JW, being a Jehovah's Witness, the one thing that they beat into your head as especially as a cis male is how to like public speaks, right? So you're supposed to give talks and you're supposed to do all of these things. Like you go door to door and you knock and you you talk to random people. So for me, like, My partner is always kind of on me about that because I can go anywhere and be friends with anybody. It is very, very easy for me to talk to people. Um, And that is the one thing that I take away. I've taken away from that, like that religion is even in my career, like I'm a public speaker, like as a consultant, I leave next week to go do a public speaking. I just came from another school this week. Like public speaking does not scare me. But I think for me, religion, I, I look at religion as being this thing that is used to control people. I think it is ex- extremely scary. Um, I think it's way more, and again, this is a personal belief, I believe it's way more harmful than helpful. Why should anybody be a part of an organization or be a part of something and feel like they can't show up as their authentic self? That's the struggle that I have with religion. Um, I struggle with the fact that so many people, male, female, trans, queer, regardless of Black, white, they are all of these kind of segments of religion that people fall into and it just, it creates this, this really unnecessary evil. It's hard for me to believe that some, some entity would put a whole bunch of imperfect people in a space, right? Create them imperfectly and then say, I'm going to critique you for not being perfect. Like it, it, it boggles my mind to believe that. Right. And so I believe if there is a god or if there is a godlike figure that this figure is a representation of us that it understands anger it understands frustration that it understands love that it understands unhappiness it understands happiness that it it has all of the same emotions and feelings that we have but more than that it understands how imperfect we are as people, how many issues we are all dealing with and why we're dealing with them, right? I think people use religion to control people. I think politics are used to control people. It is not an accident that all of these laws and things are popping up around what we learn about Black history, what we learn about trans people, what trans people can and can't do, um, what women, cis women can and can't do with their bodies, what trans people can and can't do with their bodies. Um, it is the same way that religion uses the Bible to control people or use Bible verses to control people. I always tell people white supremacy is 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 invisible on purpose. Um, it is it's intentional, right? And so, you know, I see all these conversations about forefathers, and I see all these conversations about the people who've created this country and the founding fathers and all of these different things. And I'm going, they were utilizing all of the same concepts, both politically and religiously to garner power and to garner um, control. That's really what it came down to, right? And a lot of the stuff we see in our country, especially as Americans, started with colonialism. It started with the idea of, I'm going to take my religion and I'm going to push it off on you. And then I'm going to tell you this terrible thing that's getting ready to happen to you was of God, right? But only knowing and understanding that it's all a political way of, of trying to keep control. I would challenge anyone who is kind of set up in their religion to start thinking about what is oppression? What does oppression look like and how does oppression work? How I got to kind of this place of, you know, white supremacy is everywhere. Um, I started a lot with reading, you know, again, I was very grateful to have a dissertation chair, who was very, 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 very in tune, not only just with critical race theory, but was very in tune with positionality, right? And helping me understand how power structures work. There's a scholar named Mesawa, and he talks a lot about um, the blend between feminist theory and, and, you know, the concept of queer race theory. And he kind of, that's kind of the crux of the research that I do. I still do a lot of writing. I want to shout out Kimberly Crenshaw, because Kimberly Crenshaw was the one who gave me the the actual word to understand my lived experience as a black fat queer person. Um but also wanted to shout out, you know, I couldn't I I I genuinely always whenever I do a talk, I always open with the same slide and it's always a slide of Marsha P. Johnson, who threw the brookets, who threw the bricks, slash, started, act up, and who was doing all of these things for black queer people, specifically BIPOC queer people in New York in the early 80s, right before her untimely death. Um, I talk a lot about Audrey Lorde in my work. Audrey Lorde actually was one of the people who helped me understand when all these terrible things started happening to me in, in a job that I had years ago. It was reading her work that helped me understand, oh, that's why they're coming after you, right? Because you're telling the truth. It was Audre Lorde who made me feel like, oh, okay, I actually am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is why, because I'm able to read her stuff. Um, Roxanne Gay helped me understand a lot of my I, my identity as a fat femme person. Um, But more than not, James Baldwin, I think, you know, I live by this quote, I critique America because I love her. Um, and that's literally who I am. I critique things because I'm not critiquing it because I just want to be that asshole that's in the room. I'm critiquing it because I want it to be better. I want white people to be better. I want us to be better to each other. Um, if I sit here and I let us treat each other terribly, then I'm only a part of the problem. Um, and so all that to be said, um, I know I gave a whole bunch of names, but, um, and that of Beyonce, again, I'm just keep throwing her name out because. She's mother, my religion and my, my God would be love. And I know it's so cliche to say that, but I say in so many words, I genuinely love people and I genuinely love loving people and being nice to people. You know, I I think about this often, right? Like I've had days where my day started off so crappy and I went in somewhere, I went somewhere and someone said something to me and it changed my entire mood. That's, that's God to me, right? Like there are friends that I have and friendships that I've built with people. I'm trying not to get emotional where they have seen me and helped me in ways that they will never know. And I go, that's God. That's, that's the religion we should all be aspiring to that. I'm looking at you and I'm looking at you and I'm going, you have been through probably some things in your life that I will never understand. I want to extend to you the grace and 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 the graciousness to be kind. So if I can be kind to you, you can be kind to me, baby. That's love. That's that's the religion I want to serve. I would tell the 16, 17, 18-year-old me, you are literally going to be the person you didn't have for so many people. And your life is going to be so good. And you're not going to be able to stand it. Like you're not going to be able to fully understand why? And there are days, I kid you not, I get up and I go, I don't know why. Me? I don't know why I was chosen for some of the things that I do or some of the opportunities I've had. But I go to bed and honey, it is so nice to know that finally everything feels like it. it's all making sense.
3: You know, I didn't meet a self-avowed witch until I moved to New York City and I met a lot of witches um in new york city and i was kind of really i was really intrigued by it when i was in georgia ooh, this would have terrified me like terrified me so, so i'm really excited for our next guest she is a psychic she is a medium she speaks to the dead she says that she's very spiritual but she is a self-professed skeptic which is interesting to me because like i'm sure people are very skeptical about what, what she's got going on we're gonna listen to her today and she runs a community called um the spirit house collective and believes that uh, all black queer people are inherently people of magic so let's listen to asia
0: my name is asia Deshur. i'm a medium and a life guide and basically i spend my days talking to the dead my dad is a unitarian my mother is buddhist and i was brought up to basically just kind of explore whatever it is i felt called to um step into, which for most of my life was agnostic, being an agnostic, you know, believing in something greater, but not really sure what that was. I would see my mother, you know, doing a lot of meditations and sitting by her altar a lot. Uh, But other than that, you know, my, my, my dad's side of the family definitely were brought up, you know, Baptist, very, very religious. Uh, The fact that he wasn't Baptist anymore, uh, definitely, I'm sure created some waves. But, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, my dad's Black and we're thinking about the South and there was a lot of. Um, a lot of fear connected to some of the connections that our ancestry had in terms of uh, hoodoo, voodoo, santeria. Um, I definitely remember. My dad, you know, when I started doing the work I do, telling me that, you know, people would throw things at the house because they thought my, my grandmother uh, was, you know, was a hoodoo uh, priestess. So just a lot of like confusion around what it's okay to believe in. And I think that's why my parents, when I was growing up, were like, whatever you, whatever you feel connected to. When I was about four years old, I started waking up in the middle of the night and seeing people around me and running to my parents' room. And that went on until I was about 11 or 12. And I just assumed that everyone kind of had the same experiences. And when I realized that they didn't, I was like, oh, I'm not, I can't, I don't want to be different like this. And I just kind of shut it, shut it down. I just was like, why are these people talking to me? I don't, they're adults. Like, I can't relate. Um, I just wanna go to sleep. I just want to be able to sleep through the night. Honestly, a lot of the memories from my childhood, I really repressed until I was in my early thirties. And when I was kind of, many people would call it an awakening. You know, When I had my awakening, that's when a lot of those memories came back and I was able to then go back and talk to my parents and ask questions about what was going on. I had gone through a really bad breakup and I was living in LA and had decided to basically restart my entire life. And I had moved to New York and I discovered or was having the realization that I'd been incredibly depressed for almost a decade. And I was, and I was thinking either this is just the way life is where like, I, I guess I'm never going to be happy and this is just the way everyone's life is or I need to figure some, something out, you know? And I started by meditating Everyone had been telling me to meditate. And I was like, if one more fucking person tells me to meditate, I'm just going to, like, scream. But that's what I started doing. And through that meditate, meditative practice, I, all those memories started coming back. I started, you know, what I would call living in flow, like just synchronicity things just started, like, clicking in the place. I started meeting other people who basically became teachers through experience. And then once those memories started coming back, Once my, and again, this was only for me, you know, this was not for any other lofty goal other than not being depressed anymore. But once I started remembering and committing to my meditation practice, that's also when I started to be aware again of the spirits around me. And then I became obsessed with how can I communicate? How can I get back to that place that I was was that when I was little, when I could actually see them. I feel like my depression was connected to the fact that I was living a life in a way that was, will this make my dad proud? Will this make my parents proud? Is this acceptable for, you know, through society? Is this something that others feel is worthy of attention or accolades or you know respect? I was living my life based on that. Once I stopped doing that, and once I decided to like, make decisions based on what felt right, what felt true, that's when everything changed. And that's when, you know, I was able to accept my gift because I wasn't even able to see it as a gift. I was very, very, very dedicated to my, my daily practice, my meditations, my connecting with uh, my spirit guides, basically. And then one day I heard one of them say, you need to merge your life coaching practice with mediumship. And I was like, oh, that's no, like, that's too much. Like, I can't, That sounds like a bad idea. (laughs) And my guide said, No, this is exactly what you need to do. Do you trust us? And I said, Yes, I do. And as soon as I merged the two, everything changed. And there was a lot of shame attached to it in the beginning. A lot with, with my partner, with my family, with I mean, honestly, with everyone, with my friends. I still have friends from before I started doing this work who have never, ever, ever, ever mentioned the work that I do just will, and probably will never mention it. You know, I have family members that won't talk to me. You know, I used to hear people talk about, you know, oh, this is my calling. And I used to think, what does that even mean? You know, like, what is a calling? And this, and then I realized through my experience, like, there's nothing you, I couldn't, I could only move forward. It, with every fiber of my being, I knew this was the, the work that I was supposed to be doing. I mean, at one point, my partner asked me to stop because things were getting kind of crazy at the house. He used to be an atheist. And then kind of some wild stuff started happening at night. And when we were sleeping, I mean, he was seeing some really crazy things. And he just, he, he at one point said, please, can you please stop? Because I also didn't know what I was doing. I was just, it's, you know, just trying to figure it out as you go. Like, anyone want to talk? I'll talk, you know, which is not the way to do it. And he said, can you please just stop? And I said, no. I was like, I can't stop. And I'm really sorry. And I don't want you to be uncomfortable, but this is what I am meant to do. And and this is more important than anything else. I think that everyone is born with an intuitive ability. And I think everyone is born with an ability to connect to energies around them. But um, I think we are also, some of us are born with a deeper connection. When I first started doing this work, I was, I was thinking I had experiences as a a child. I want to, I want to see if I can get back to that point of that potency of that connection. And that required a lot of commitment that required me every day, trying to connect to the dead, trying to see how they wanted to connect with me. And it didn't happen overnight. Right? Um, and when it did, when I started, when I when my clear audience started to kick in, which is clear hearing, which is basically being able to hear spirits, that was the first sign that I had that I could get back to that place, or I could um, move into a new area of connecting. I actually, at one point, I almost asked my partner to take me to the hospital because I was doing so much mediumship work that I didn't even feel that I was on this plane. Well, I would get up in the morning, I'd feel like I was floating above. And at that point I had a regular job so that I'm like, I'm talking to people about, I don't know, like their matcha latte and then I'm hearing voices around me and I'm like, this isn't real. None of this is real. Right. So I had to learn as I went, you know, um, how to protect myself, how to ground my energy, how to be specific about the spirits I wanted to talk to, how to create boundaries with spirits. You know, and then once when my Clair audience really started to kick in, other clairs kick in. So then I started my my clairvoyance clear scene. So I started to to see things when I was talking to people. I didn't want to see the visual representation. I didn't want to see the actual you know spirit in front of me because that would be too distracting. But I told my guides that they could send me images. so I'd be talking to someone, and all of a sudden I would see like a beautiful atrium, and I'd say, Something like, "Oh, are you um, are you going to a greenhouse?" So, like, "Oh, that's so funny! I'm actually getting married in a greenhouse next week." And I just would, you know, mentally in my head, I'm like, "Okay, check," because you're then also constantly trying to prove to yourself that you're not crazy, and that, and since what you're dealing with is really, in essence, smoke and mirrors, how can I prove to myself that what I'm experiencing is actually happening to me, right? how can I learn how to turn the volume up and down on what I'm hearing and seeing? Cause you don't want to be inundated all the time. You know, you also don't want to hear horrible things about people all the time. I would, you know, be talking to someone and one of my guides would say, Oh, she's going to die. And I'd say, okay, so here's a new rule. I don't want to know that type of stuff. Right. I don't want to know anything about my family, you know, creating, you're creating a relationship with spirits that is mutually respectful Because the spirits are just going to say, whatever is going on, whatever they feel they need to collectively tell you. Me as a human being, I need to tell them what I feel comfortable being able to receive and what I don't want to be inundated with for my own mental health. Regardless of whether you believe in in this, in what I do or not, what we're really talking about is building a stronger connection with yourself. You know, what is it that you're going through throughout the day? What is it that you're hoping the day is going to bring? What issues are you having and how are you unlocking it from in here and actually speaking it out loud saying, I, I don't like myself today. I, I'm having some issues with, you know, with confidence. As soon as you speak it, you can begin to almost like be your own therapist. Well, you know, come on, you don't like yourself. What are you talking about? You're amazing. You're fantastic. Like let's name one thing that you're incredible at, right? And again, that is activating your subconscious, that's activating your conscious mind, that's activating your, your own belief in self. And then we add the, you know, the spirit connection. You're just strengthening that core between yourself here and the energies on the other side through the veil. And eventually, the more that you do that, you'll begin to see signs, right? Now, like for me, it's, you know, you'll hear a voice. You're like, oh, what was that? For some of us, it's like I, I, I wanted to feel as though abundance was possible. And I've been talking to my guides and myself for a month and I walked out the door and I just saw, you know, a cluster of bumblebees, right, which symbolize fertility. You begin to allow yourself to receive symbols that are always around you that we've been kind of programmed and taught to ignore. But as kids, like we're very aware of these signs of the of the beauty and, and majesty of the universe, right? And then slowly over time it's eroded. So we're basically at this point where we're reparenting ourselves and giving ourselves permission to be honest and open with how we're feeling and honest and open about the fact that the world is a magical place and there's signs and symbols everywhere if we're just open to receiving them. If we talk about slavery, if we talk about you know our ancestors being brought here from Africa and being taught that their beliefs were not only taboo taboo but evil the idea of having to hide who they were and who they believed in in Catholicism in Christianity you know the slow erosion of faith due to assimilation I mean it's 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 tragic it's a travesty and we still have so much of that I mean, like my family in the South, you know, will not speak on this work. They they will not. Right. I think there is a deep correlation between being black and being a person of magic. And I am so grateful that now it is, we have more latitude to not only speak on it, but claim it as our own. When Spirituality and wellness is now a multi-billion dollar industry run mostly by white men and white women who have stolen yet again our magic. Yeah, when I started doing this work, there was a lot of anger around it, you know, but I utilized that anger and turned it into momentum for myself. I'm incredibly proud of the work that I do. And look, like mediumship, talking to the dead, that's not just for Black people. That's that's everybody. But the ways in which that we can go deeper into it, the way that it's connected to certain religions, to certain spiritual practices, it, you know, when I feel like it's being hijacked without any respect to its origins, I just see red. And I am not someone that believes that, like, you know, you have to be black to practice voodoo or hoodoo or Santeria. I don't, I believe that like any, any of us can, if we feel called, we can, but the level of respect and acknowledgement and connection, and how long are you, are you committing to this work? You know, I know so many, you know, women who are like, Oh, I took this, you know, 48 hour, you know, certification. And now, and I'm just like, stop, just shh, shh. no, you cannot please stop talking. Or, oh my gosh, I've got this like floppy hat and all of a sudden I'm just, "Mm, shh, just stop. Whenever I talk to a client, they always show me a road. Now, sometimes they'll show me the client on the road. Sometimes I'll see the road, but the client will be like in a field to the right. Sometimes the client will be, you know, walking in circles and the road represents that person's life path. So sometimes the road is clear and I'm like, "Oh wow, like so everything is kind of clear right now. You can just move right on ahead or it seems like you're walking in circles or it seems like you're 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 lost." And then I use these cues to to say certain things to the client and then the client will then tell me if it's true or not, right? Yes, absolutely. I've been feeling lost for years, you know. And I have to be un- unattached to whatever it is they say. I'm not there to prove to them that I'm hearing certain things because sometimes they might not even Connect the dots of what I'm being told until weeks later, and then they'll come back and say, "Oh my gosh, I know I said no to everything that you said, but it all makes sense now. I just wasn't ready to be open and honest about it. But that's one thing so I, there's the the road or they'll show me you know um, a body of water which represents like the river of source itself. Uh, sometimes they'll show like again, a person in a boat with like a, you know, with the oars, or sometimes they'll just show them like floating or sometimes with water up to their neck. All of these are to help me understand where that person's, where where I'm meeting that person. So I can have a clear idea of how to get them on a, on, on track, so to speak, or to give them advice from their guides that they're really going to be able to pick up and utilize tangibly. Cause that's what spirit guides want. You know, one of the things I have so much respect for spirit guides and I have so much respect for spirits. One of my biggest pet peeves is whether you're, if you're coming to see me or doing a a sound journey or Reiki or whatever, you're receiving medicine. And then one of my biggest pet peeves is then people who don't do anything with it. Right? Like, Oh, that was cool. That was a great experience. And then nothing. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, these, these spirits are coming to you and saying, this is what you need. Let me give this to you. This is what is going to help. Let me show it to you. And then, To not do anything with it, it's such a slap in the face because there is no doubt that if you utilize what your ancestors and guides are suggesting, that your life will 100% change for the better. There's been so much vilification of honestly anything connected to, to Black history when it comes to faith, when it comes to belief. You know, when it comes to magic, when it comes to—I mean, when you walk into a church, you know, whether it's a Catholic church or a Christian church, there are tons of candles that are being lit. When we go back in time to, you know, um, the African tribes, you know, fire was one of the first, you know, magics that not only was created, but that was utilized to connect to the dead, to connect to spirits, to connect to our to our soul. So I think that when we think about religion, we have to also think about the story of mankind. And Africans were the first people, anyway. So, the more honor and respect and desire we have to learn where we came from, the more open we're going to be with ourselves and our uh, our own evolution. And that goes into actually queerness. I mean, we can talk about you know the. <laughs> it just makes me angry when I think about the way that the um, that. That, you know, straight white men have just tried to strip away our magic in every single form due to fear and insecurity and ignorance, right? I think the more queer people of color, those who've been viewed as outsiders, the more of us that there are that have access to abundance, that have. We have access to change the world from the inside out and make it exactly the way it was meant to be free in every single form. So that's what I sit at my altar and ask, how can I help the world be more free? How can I help the world be more connected? How can I help myself have the strength and courage to keep doing what I'm doing, despite all of the the bullshit that we're constantly being inundated with? We have struggled. But our struggle is our gift. The struggles we've gone through throughout the generations have hardened us, have made us who we are. Decided. Have decided in the stars that we are that we are not only warriors, we are we are pioneers. We are, we are made of the stuff, the stuff of legend. We are, here. we are here to move mountains. We are here, we are here to remove obstacles. We are here, we are here to show the, the, world, the world in general what is what is not only possible, what is attainable. What is, what it is that drives the human spirit? We are. We are the ultimate, in so in so many ways. Therefore, therefore, when there's fear, when there's when there's doubt, when there are those, when there are those who wish to crush us, who wish to crush us under their feet, under their feet, under their heels, under their heels, with their words, with their words, we must understand. We must understand that we are that we are not to be conquered. We are not. We are not to be met with anything with anything other than respect, respect, veneration. We are. We are the chosen ones in many and many ways now. Now that is not to say that there are not others that there are not others who are not chosen but we are, but we are the ones that have decided that we can not only that we can not only sacrifice, sacrifice who we are, who we are for the sake, for the sake of the collective, but we will. but we will change the world in many ways and many ways over and over and over and over and over and over again. We are fire, we are ice, we are ice, we are steel, we are steel.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> Religion as as an issue and subject is very old. And many of the religions are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Um, and they were, I believe, invented to give us, you know, a sort of list of procedure, how we were, how we should conduct ourselves since we don't have um the type of science that we have developed today and we don't have the answers for a lot of things about where where this light comes from in the sky or what happens to the body after you put it in the ground or any of those things and so you know in in lieu of all those things we have religion yeah. which served to answer a lot of things but was also the cause of so many wars people fighting madness in honor of religion and 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 doing a lot of the things that humans have done either individuals or humankind has done that I would say were destructive
3: to each other were done in the name of religion. I think religion is one of the most destructive things on the planet, if I'm being fully honest. And, you know, it it is very... It can be very divisive.
1: And even though religion has been used for a lot of these really um, dastardly and harmful things, that I things that I view as harmful... Uh, It is important to note that um, other great things have come out of religion and people's connection to religion, uh, especially when we're thinking from the charitable lens. And so that's important. You know, Catholic Charities has helped a lot of people, even though they're connected to uh, the Catholic Church, um, which has done a lot of harm. And so, you know, individuals in the name of um, religion can do make their own choices and so I don't want to um, discredit that. Some great things have come out of religion. The patriarchy and masculinity were, are the driving forces behind the reasons to go to war, but using things like religion as an excuse. Because if you look at the, the texts that have been put out, the documents that we follow through these religions, um, it doesn't say you need to go to war oh, no, no. because God wants you to go to war. It's people you misusing religion as an excuse to do a lot of these things and i think that i think that the driving force behind those things are people's connection to um gender class race and sexuality and i'm going to throw in there those are class
3: we're going to throw in like money and and greed and 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 capitalism
1: um absolutely and so those are the things that i think really at from my perspective at the root of it um are when someone is taking it upon themselves to correct other people or tell them how to live their life or change their life, a lot of times it has to do with that person's the pe- the people's sexuality, genders, uh, class, access to money, um, and things like that. But they're using religion as an as an excuse. You know, you know, the whole Jim Crow was like all about Christianity. But like it really wasn't. It? But I mean, you know I mean? <laughs> but also the Bible
3: literally tells you how to purchase and sell slaves. So, like, I mean, what are we? What, you know what I mean? The Bible is literally like this: is how you do slaves, this is how you get them, this is how you gotta treat them, this is how you gotta sell them. So, just, for someone who's like agnostic atheist, this is kind of wild. I saw, I, I, I when I was younger, I thought I saw an angel. I had an experience okay. where I was like, it was nineteen ninety four, and I was laying in bed in my room. You ever had sleep paralysis before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I I still get sleep paralysis to this day, and um and I remember being like trying to move, but I couldn't. And then I finally, and while I was having the sleep paralysis, this 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 white man came from the ceiling of my bedroom, and he said, "Don't go to Mississippi this summer, or your grandma's gonna die." He was a blonde white man, and then he went back into the ceiling. He looked like the white man, who was an angel in my biblical dvds which makes me believe i created him on my own but then when i went to mississippi that summer my grandma died and i remember screaming and I, and I begged my mom i said mom please 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 can we please not go to mississippi we can't go grandma's gonna die and my mom was like boy you didn't see no you didn't see no i said no mom, the angel came down and it told me that grandma's gonna die if we go to mississippi now my my grandma was fifty four years old she was not old she was young she had a heart attack mm-hmm. so it was it was very odd and i I was one of those kids who used to guess lottery numbers I guessed the lottery numbers three times on three different occasions. I guessed the lottery numbers, and then when my mom started trying to play them, i lost the the skill now I, I i I think it was more than likely all just coincidence and just chance, but it is weird that it happened to me, and I'm still like nah, <laughs> probably not. Well, I mean, I do think that there are things
1: like premonitions and those things can happen separately, separate from actual religion or spirituality. Maybe they're connected to those things. And, and, you know, it, I, I've also had similar experiences. You know, I was walking down the street one day and I had no money in this. How yeah. Star Trek toy had come out. I was probably 10, 12, mm-hmm. 10 or 11. And, uh, my favorite star Trek character had just come out in a toy version, like a figurine. Who it? and Tasha Yar from uh, the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, And she uh, was a little figurine. And I went to the um, comic book store that sold the toy and I saw it there, but it was like $7 and I had like $3 in my pocket. So I stole it. No, just kidding.
3: <laughs> so an, a- an angel <laughs> came
1: down and said, steal that toy, girl. Steal, <laughs> steal it. that thing and run, bitch. No, uh, so I left all sort of dejected. And I just didn't have the money for it and we were poor. Um, And then I saw this old lady um, walking across the street and she needed help first and last time I ever helped an old lady across the street. And she, uh, so I helped her across the street. It was very like Church of Latter-day Saints commercial, um, and I helped her across the street, and she was like, oh, you're such a nice child, and she gave me $5, which gave me exactly enough with tax to get the doll, um, and so I, I couldn't believe it, and I ran back and, of course, bought the doll um,
3: and was so, like, super, super, super excited. I have it
1: to this. I have it right over there. Really?
3: In a- universe of infinite possibilities there's going to be some anomalies mm-hmm. there's going to be some unexplainable things there's going to be some things that you think to yourself that can't possibly be real because we are in a universe of infinite possibilities so every once in a while you're gonna you're gonna like you know reach up and grab something at the exact same time perfect time you're gonna you're gonna hold your hand up and you know you're gonna bump into the person who ends up being the love of your life you're going to you're going to end up uh, saying the same word at the same time as someone else on the other side of the planet, it doesn't mean there's divine intervention involved in it. It's a world of infinite possibilities, you know?
1: Special thanks to our production team, Charlene Westbrook, Tracy Marquez, Amelia Ritaler, and Corey Nixon
3: now listen every episode of town hall a black queer podcast will have contributions from our listeners and our viewers and if you keep an eye out uh, on me and peppermint social media maybe we'll hear from you
0: very soon